Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. You know, you mentioned a lack of cooperation. Uh, Several months ago, we had Sheriff Mack on the program, and we discussed the fact that they actually did that kind of practical nullification. A group of federal agents came down to address the county sheriff's uh, association and said, well, here's what you're going to do to enforce our new federal law. And they basically told them to stuff it. And they went to court and they won their case. And the Supreme Court said the states do not have an, any obligation whatsoever to enforce a federal law. Federal law, well, you got to enforce it yourself, big government. Come ahead and do it, but don't expect the states to give you that cooperation. Exactly. And, and in fact, the uh, the case that Sheriff Mack is referencing is Prince versus U.S. Prince was the other sheriff, along with Sheriff Mack, that uh, was involved in that suit. It, it involved the Brady Gun Bill back in 1996. And uh, basically what one provision of the Brady Gun Bill was is that the, the county law enforcement officers, which essentially is the sheriffs in, in, in most cases, they were required by the federal law to uh, help do the background checks for uh, for this gun bill. And Sheriff Max, Sheriff Prince, you know, we're not doing this. You, you can't commandeer our resources. And, and uh, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court agreed. And this actually goes back to through several other Supreme Court cases that date back all the way to 1842 in a case called Creek versus Pennsylvania. And it was a fugitive slave case. And uh, Joseph Story, who was, is really not a friend of uh, limited government, but this was a a good ruling for uh, for our for, for our particular cause. He held that the uh, federal government couldn't require the states to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act; that it was a federal uh, responsibility, so that the states weren't obligated to help with fugitive slave rendition. And the northern states used this to great effect prior to the Civil War to thwart fugitive slave rendition. So it dates all the way back to 1842. There's actually a legal term for it. It's called the anti-commandeering doctrine. And that Prince case that Sheriff Mack mentioned is is probably the central key case. And it allows us to, you know, for the first several years that I worked with the Tenth Amendment Center, we, we kept having to butt our heads against lawyers. And, you know, they'd start talking about the supremacy clause. And, and you know, I can vigorously debate them and win the debate every time. If you go back to the uh, founding documents and what the ratifying conventions said, and uh, you know it, it's it's very clear that they're wrong. But the fact that they're wrong doesn't change the fact that that's the way the system is running today. Using the anti-commandeering doctrine, we can have a practical impact and avoid all of this debate completely, and simply get about the business of uh, 
making the federal government have uh, have issues doing what it wants to do. So. Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the Supremacy Clause. That's one of the primary um, arguments that people give you as to why you cannot go against the federal government. But the Supremacy Clause is very clear. It says, this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land. So anything that is not made in pursuance of the Constitution itself uh, really is, does not come under the purview of the Supremacy Clause. It's pretty exactly. Clear. You can go back in the Federalist Papers, and, and Alexander Hamilton, of all people, made that case and, and said very emphatically that any anything that was not in pursuance of the Constitution, he said, was was null void and of no effect. Uh, he didn't use those exact words; those are Jefferson's words. But but essentially, that's what he said. He said a, a law that is outside of the delegated powers is not a law at all. Uh, the supremacy clause doesn't apply. The supremacy clause only applies to uh, legitimately, constitutionally uh, supported law. So uh, the supremacy clause argument is is something that's used by either lawyers who probably know better but understand that most people don't, or it's used in ignorance and people don't really understand what it means and, and want to pretend like it means the federal government can do whatever it wants. Well, no, that's not what it means at all. So. Well, the Supreme Court... Uh, unfortunately, has departed from its really its true role. Uh, a lot of people think court has the right to interpret the Constitution, and we know that that's really not the case. The Supreme Court was created; it was part of the creation of the states, and in essence, it is each individual state that has the right to determine the constitutionality of anything that the federal government does, and that's through nullification, interposition or even secession. <clears throat> and so really under that, under those guidelines, secession really was perfectly legal. Absolutely. And if, you know, anybody who wants to argue with that needs to go read the uh, ratification doctrine, uh, the rat- ratification document that was produced by the uh, New York, uh, Rhode Island, and a couple of other states. And it explicitly says that we reserve the right to ass- reassume any of these powers delegated. In other words, we can take them back. <laughs> We're letting you have them for the time being. Uh, it's very clear that the state ratifying conventions upon approving the Constitution did it with an understanding that, A, they had the authority to interpret the extent of the powers delegated, and that they had the right to reassume those powers if they so, so desired. Uh, it's not even a debatable thing, although everybody in the world wants to debate it. <laughs> well, that comes back again, really, to the role of the 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, in really kind of allowing the federal government to blackmail the states. So, yes, where they have all these rights, they they definitely have the sovereignty in law that they are supposed to have. But if all the money is now coming from Washington back down to the states— that's a powerful tool to prevent a state from backing out of anything. Right, it absolutely is, and that's one of the that's one of the true difficulties that that we face. But the good news is that the federal government is more reluctant than most people imagine to actually pull that funding. They use it as a threat, and they use it as a billy club. But I was actually just. Uh, I have a podcast that I do weekly, and a couple of weeks ago I was just talking about the fact that we shouldn't fear the big, bad federal government. And 
if history is any indication, in most cases, when enough states make a big enough stink, the federal government will back down. And uh, the case that I like to look at is the speed limits back in the 1970s. You know, they lowered the speed limit to 55, and of course, uh, they you know even even then they recognized that they couldn't just mandate a 55 mile an hour speed limit. So what they did was they tied it to federal highway funding. And the way the law was written, if more than 50% of the traffic on a given highway within a, a state was averaging above that 55-mile-an-hour threshold, then the federal government could pull highway funding. Well, by the mid-'80s, virtually every state was in not in compliance with the law. Not one federal highway dollar was ever yanked. What ultimately ended up happening was that Congress went and raised that speed limit. So when pushed by enough states and by enough people, federal government, being a political entity that it is, will back down in most cases, and I think people uh, sometimes are a little bit too scared to take action because of all the what-ifs. Well, what if they pull this funding, or what if they do this, or what if they do that? Well, you know, what if they do? What if they don't? Let's go ahead and try it and uh, and, and force them to call their bluff, and I think in most cases they're going to back down because they're political creatures. They can't be yanking highway funding out of the state. We're taking a quick break on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We'll be right back. Well, they, I mean, theoretically they could, and they, you know, they, they manipulate so many things, the federal government, uh, now because they have so much money to play around with. But, you know, one of the things that concerns me about the concept is that a law is on the books. We may nullify it in a practical way by failure to adhere to it or by saying, well, you do it yourself or we interpose a state power between the federal government and its citizens. But the problem is the law still remains on the books. And when you have a change in political power in the state, then theoretically that law can be re-implemented. Well, I guess that's true of anything. I mean, ultimately, this is all up to the people. It's up to the people to hold their their state governments accountable. And that's that's why nullification is a better tool than trying to run to Washington, D.C. and get your congressmen to change the law, because they don't listen. Now, I can tell you for a fact that if you get 40 people calling a state legislator on a certain bill, it freaks them out because they're not used to getting their phone calls. They're not used to getting the pressure. Uh, there is lobbying that goes on at the state level, but it's not nearly the, the powerful extent that you have at the federal level. So the people have a great deal of power over their state legislators and can actually move bills and get things done, whereas Congress is pretty much useless. So ultimately, it's always up to the people. I mean, you know, and, and really from, from a practical standpoint, there's no way to get the law off the books. You know, if the uh, federal government wants to have a law on the books, it's going to have a law on the books. We have to find ways to pressure from the bottom up and, first off, make that impractical to enforce. And then what happens is you will see the change crawl up the ladder. And, you know, I think the best example of this, and, you know, no matter what people may think about marijuana or medical marijuana, that law, federal law, has been effectively nullified at this point, and you're beginning to see 
desire for quote unquote reform at the federal level because they recognize that Jeannie's never going to be put back in the bottle. And we see the same thing with hemp. We see so much pressure from the states on industrial hemp and the desire to have that option uh, as an agricultural product that you're beginning to see movement at the upper levels of government. So it's a way to pressure from the bottom up. Change it from the bottom up instead of focusing all your attention on trying to get things done in Washington, D.C., which is the mindset of most Americans. We're going to call our congressman. We're going to have the great president that's going to come in and save the day. I can guarantee you that no matter who's elected president in uh, in 2016, whether it's Rand Paul or Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton, whoever it is, that within two years the federal government is going to be bigger, deeper in debt, and more intrusive. The president's not going to save us. We have to work at the grassroots level and push from the bottom up. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Well, that actually is the concept that our founders really wanted. They believed that all of these decisions needed to be made at the local level. That was the force of the town hall meeting. You got your neighbors, your friends, your whatever in the town hall, and that's how government was run 100, 200 years ago. You sat down together in a room, you made some decisions, and that was your local decision-making function to say, here's how we want to do it over here in Cherokee County, North Carolina. I don't care what they want to do in Wake County or any other county in the east or in the big cities or wherever. We in Cherokee County... This is what we want to do. And that's why it's so important for local governments to meet and uh, put forward those kind of views. Because you're right, they do put pressure on the state level. And we have done that here from Cherokee County and other counties, other the small rural counties of North Carolina. Yep, I've seen it work. And, uh, you know... It's not it's not an easy solution. It's not a guaranteed solution. We're fighting uh, a battle and trying to undo something that's been, you know, 150 years in the making. And I think the problem with with a lot of Americans is, and you know, I'll throw myself in this category. We have a short attention span. You know, we're the we're the 30 second soundbite generation, and we don't like the idea of something that's going to take two or three or four more or more years to accomplish, but Unfortunately, with any of these things, it takes a great deal of time. You know, I was just talking to Michael Bolden, who's the executive director at the Tenth Amendment Center, the other day, and we were talking about uh, the number of drone bills that have passed during this legislative session, and we're really starting to see some some states put together some pretty robust protections of privacy as far as law enforcement use of drones. But this has been three years in the making. Uh, when we first really began to pay attention to this issue. Uh, the only state that really did anything was Virginia, and they were the first to take any action, and all they did was pass a two-year moratorium. Well, this year, they took the next step and did a permanent ban on warrantless drone surveillance in most situations. But it's taken time to educate, to fight those legislative battles, to figure out how to overcome the law enforcement opposition. And now we're starting to see momentum and see victories. But the first year, you know, you could have argued that, oh, this is utter failure. Failure is not going to work. You have to be patient and you have to be persistent and you have to continue to work uh, on on these various issues. And uh, there is no magic bullet and there is no uh, instant gratification in this type of work. And, and I really try to encourage people not to get discouraged if they don't see victory the first time around. Uh, sometimes it takes two, three, four legislative sessions. But if you're persistent 
continue to pressure those legislators. You need to pay attention to who you're voting for in those uh, those state races. Then you begin to see the change. You know, the Tenth Amendment Center has always been at the forefront of a lot of these issues because the Tenth Amendment is really the key, really the key to holding back the power of the federal government. What kind of initiatives are, are you guys doing when it comes to, like, the Fourth Amendment privacy and the NSA and things of that nature? Well, that's actually the uh, the policy area that I've personally been most involved in. And uh, it's it's fascinating to see how much the federal government has extended itself into not only your state government but your local government through the channels of law enforcement. Uh, they, the federal government spends a great deal of money uh, equipping and training and working with state and local law enforcement, and a lot of it shows its fruit in these various surveillance programs. For instance, license plate readers. Uh, you know, we have uh, state and local law enforcement using these license plate readers and then entering them into databases uh, so that they can track down a... Uh, you know, somebody with a warrant, somebody with a parking ticket or whatever. And, and certainly some of this technology has legitimate law enforcement uses. But what happens is you've got the federal government that is funding all of these things. They're buying this equipment for these uh, local police forces. And then what they do is they come back and they uh, implement data sharing agreements. And the federal government's creating huge databases of license plate location data where they can track where people go. It's kind of kind of freaky if you really think about it and, and recognize just how much the government can learn about you just by knowing where you go. They can figure out where, what churches you attend, what protests you might go to, what political affiliations you have. There's a great deal of, of ramification uh, in what seemingly is a local uh, type of, of program. So we've been very active this year in pushing for limits on – license plate readers, for instance, and, and making sure that uh, data is not retained for long periods of time and that data can't be shared. Uh, same things with drone surveillance. The federal government uh, is very active in funding these drone programs, and it's the same thing. It's information sharing that ends up in these federal databases. Um, but the biggest thing that we've been really pushing is trying to figure out a way to use the powers of the state to bring some attention and uh, to block some of this unconstitutional spying that we're seeing from the NSA. And what we've realized is, going back to what we talked about with uh, with Sheriff Mack, the fact that the states and localities do not have to provide any material support, that means we don't have to provide any material support to the NSA either. And so in these states where they have these big facilities, such as Utah, and they have this giant data center out there that's gobbling up all kinds of data, the water that's supplied to that data center is actually supplied by the city government. Uh, the city government is under no obligation to have a contract to supply water. We can essentially turn the water off. Um, I think that would make a pretty big impression on the, the folks at the NSA, and maybe that'll get their attention because Congress certainly isn't ever going to do anything to to reform these surveillance programs. So from the local things, limiting those so that that stuff doesn't end up in federal databases, all the way to trying to work with states to prohibit material support for any organization or entity that's involved in mass surveillance without a warrant, 
uh, looking at this at the state level. And this is the second year that we've really uh, been involved in this, and, and we're seeing some, some great strides. Like I said, we've seen a lot of drone bills pass. We've seen a couple of license plate readers pass. Uh, we've seen a couple of states taking action to limit the militarization of their uh, state and local police. Uh, so, you know, you don't have your, your local cops running around uh, in tanks. Um, so these things are all very important ways that we can begin to break some of that connection between the state, local, and federal government because the cozier they get, the more likely they are to cooperate with one another. We want to break those apart. We want to separate our state and local uh, law enforcement, our state and local government from, from the feds as much as we can. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. All right this morning. 